1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like Betrayal, Pillars and Reindeer, one of our Christmas ones coming up.
2: Oh, I love I don't know what on earth I'm going to do with that, but, um, but I'm quite looking forward to it with great trepidation, or Room, Broom and Mushroom. Froome, that lovely little uh, <laughs> town near Bath, Doom and Vavavoom. I think we should do the <laughs> yeah. history of Vavavoom. Yeah, okay. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Doom. Yeah. Really excellent, good one. excellent. And we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of show-offs is in fact all about Norman castles or... But the history of bullying is about Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. Mmm, more our homeschooling
1: stuff there. Um, if you've got kids, guys, go back through our back catalogue, check out the homeschooling episodes, they're great fun. The man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing, he is the hummingbird of history, so manoeuvrable in his thinking and research that he can fly sideways and hover over a subject that catches his interest, resting for hours as he drinks the nectar from the flowers of the past. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth
2: University, he is James Daybell. Hello, James. <laughs> (laughs) Hello, Sam. That was positively poetic. I think one of your finest, although your your oeuvre this this last few episodes has been magnificent. Uh, The man Mm. not sitting opposite me, who I'm describing in such... In such um, hagiographic terms, Uh, he's not sitting opposite me because we are social distancing during lockdown. Well, let's just say if he were a historical wing related inventor, he'd only be Leonardo da Vinci himself. True Renaissance man and polymath and inventor of the highly complex Ornithopter. Yes, you <laughs> guessed it. The famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Is that an actual thing, the ornithopter. It is an actual thing. Or is it thopter? It, it, is, an, it is an actual thing. It's an ornithopter. Mm-hmm. Now, before we go on... An, I think another he needs actual... to work
1: on his names. I'm not sure an ornithopter's great. No, 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 no. no. It's
2: <laughs> absolutely true. Before we go on, another uh, actual thing is a game that I was taught, a historical game that I was taught uh in the last week. Uh we we're we're full in full on in Daybell birthday mode and there are balloons everywhere and my nine year old taught me a game called Saxon No Hands. Have you ever heard of Saxon No Hands before? No. Saxon No Hands is a bit like uh, playing uh, tennis with a balloon uh, except you can't use your hands. So you only use your feet. Okay. You can only kick. You can only kick it. So, Saxon no hands. I don't know whether there's any historical uh, relevance to it. Whether the Saxons played this, if they did, get in touch. Uh, it's closely related to Old Lady Shuffle, uh, which is another variation on this. Uh, which uh, you're not allowed. You're an old lady s- sitting on the floor. You can't use your. You can't use your feet to kick the balloon. Uh, you only have to hit it with your hands. Mm. So there we are you should all be practising that Uh, Saxon no hands and old lady shuffle I can't remember how we got to that Um, inventions was it? I'm not sure Um, No no it was was true, (laughs) real true things.
1: Real true things oh right just real true things that have actually happened Well thank you for that uh, little uh, digression. Today we are doing the history of wings believe it or not. Uh, We started off uh, last week with the history of wings um, uh, inspired to do it by the Archangel Gabriel and all of the Christmas themes around us, and we thought uh, angels we could have done, but we wanted to do wings to to be able to spread our wings out a little further. We had great fun last week talking about uh, about angels in the Christian tradition, about the loss of peregrine falcons, about insecticide and Christmas trees, and this with this week we're going to be talking about all sorts of other things to do with the history of wings. Although mine are uh, many of mine are still angel based
2: because I got quite obsessed with them and couldn't stop researching about angels what about none of mine none of mine are angel based oh. uh, one of mine is to do with flies though oh nice let's go with that would you like to hear that and and it um it's uh, when when you suggested wings bizarrely the first thing that came into my head was a quote from king lear shakespeare's uh famous play king lear and it's um As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. And this is a a quotation, a speech that is spoken uh, by the character Gloucester as he wanders out onto the heath, having been blinded uh, by Lear's two Uh, elder daughters Goneril and Regan and it's one of the sort of most gruesome scenes in uh, Shakespearean theatre and I've seen it represented in different ways but it literally is the gouging out of an eye but what it talks about is it links us to the history of children and especially little boys and the pulling of wings off insects and this is a thing this is an actual thing Um, and there's a certain amount of uh, of research that's been done about this phenomenon. Um, and, and, and not just pulling wings off insects, but also animal cruelty. Uh, there's been some psychological work done on it. Uh, and I was reading uh, an extract um, in a book by Raoul Goldberg, Addictive Behaviour in Children and Young Adults, The Struggle for Freedom. And it explains the way in which children are varying sort of different ages um would quite commonly be cruel to animals um they would chop earthworms in half just because they could to see the separate halves uh, squirming around they would also pull wings off flies and other insects so it's a, it's literally sort of children doing it because they can the same way in pulling a cat's tail and they do it because it. They are born, let's say this book argues, they're born with a sort of a slightly sort of sadistic behaviour at an early age. Um, and it's something that they lose later on. But it's also these kinds of, of sort of minor acts of violence that are perpetuated on things like flies and insects, pulling wings off, is often associated with neglect or abuse that's been carried out on, on these children, can also be connected to poor self-esteem uh being lonely not having many friends um and also having being associated with truancy and vandalism and 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 bullying um and and also in a sort of more serious way it's the kind of behavior uh that can lead to uh that, that is associated with serial killers and mass killers that sort of you know that early sort of um violence towards things and it's also something that um it's also something that crops up in literature uh in children's literature in particular there's a whole motif a whole theme going through children's literature about about insects you think about um about alice in wonderland and you think about the the creatures that she meets the insects that she cr- she she meets, but also the pulling legs and wings of flies is connected to a 19th century German classic uh, children's literature book called the Struel Peter. Uh, and in particular, there's a story in it uh, known as The True Story of Cruel Frederick. And this is a naughty little boy uh, who goes around and he pulls the wings off flies and does other sort of despicable acts, and then he gets his comeuppance from it. So I want to read you an extract from the story of Cruel Frederick. Here is Cruel Frederick C., a horrid, wicked boy was he. He caught the flies, poor little things, and then tore off their tiny wings, He killed the birds and broke the chairs and threw the kitten down the stairs and, oh, far worse than all beside, he whipped his mary till she cried. The trough was full and faithful tray came out to drink one sultry day. He wagged his tail and wet his lip When cruel Fred snatched up a whip, And whipped poor Trey till he was sore, And kicked and whipped him more and more, At this good Trey grew very red, And growled and bit him till he bled. There you should only have been by, To see how Fred did scream and cry, So Frederick had to go to bed, His leg was very sore and red, The doctor came and shook his head and made a very great to-do and gave him nasty physic too. But good dog Trey is happy now. He has no time to say bow-wow. He seats himself in Frederick's chair and laughs to see the nice things there. The soup he swallows sup by sup and eats the pies and puddings up. So there we are. The lesson is to follow cruel Frederick. Do not pull the... Wings of Flies.
1: I love that. I, I
2: really, really, really interesting stuff. Total hat stand stuff. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, wonderful. mean, um, the, the, the sort of relationship between kids and wings is interesting, and I've come across, uh, well, many years ago when I was wondering what to do with my life... And I was seeking inspiration from the wide world, James. And I decided yes. I was interested in history. This was genuinely one of the things that I came across, which I loved. And it's called the Cottingley Fairies.
2: I don't, do you know anything about oh, the Cottingley Fairies? I do. I know all about them. Well, I was going to talk about them as well.
1: Oh, well, let's just do this. <laughs> let's just let's just share it and do it together. Um, so, 1917. You've got a couple of cousins uh, who are both very young, aren't they? Kind of about nine or so. And they borrow their uncle's camera, pop off down the garden, return thirty minutes later triumphant, so they say, claiming that they have taken photographs of fairies. And then the the photographic plates are uh, are developed, and sure enough, there is a photograph or several photographs of these girls sitting in the woods by a little stream with. Some actual fairies. Um, I vividly remember coming across this story. I loved it so much. And what absorbed me about it was that the photos exist, so you can find them. Just Google Cottingley fairies. There are pictures of them absolutely everywhere. But it was the reaction to everyone. Um, so it's really mixed. So on the one hand, the, um, the photographer uh, who had lent them the camera thought it was nonsense. His wife thought it was true. And then gradually this story that these girls have actually taken photos of fairies kind of gets out and it gets out into learned society you've got all sorts of extraordinary people who are willing to believe essentially what is some pretty serious fake fairy news um and they they they're willing to believe this the deep fakes is another example of what this is as well um to our eye it doesn't it doesn't look very convincing but at a time when photography was really fairly fairly young people were just coming to grips with the technology these little girls pulled the wool over lots of people's eyes who were willing to stand up and actually claim and believe that they were they'd not just taken photographs of fairies it was almost taken as proof of the existence of other worlds um and I remember coming across this and thinking that's fantastic and I, I really wanted to know and understand what had been happening in around nineteen seventeen um for people to be uh, to be willing to, to stand up and um both with a bit tongue in cheek to claim the existence fairies but others to completely accept it and absorb it um I suppose James it was a bit of fun in the middle of the first world war looking at the date
2: now yes, but if you look at the pictures they're actually quite they're quite good aren't they they're amazing they're not just sort of they're not just you know, they're not just sort of... A crap you know. cardboard
1: cutout of a fairy. Yes,
2: exactly. They're, they're really beautifully painted and look really, really realistic. Yeah, but they, it... But they fool, you know, some really serious people. You know, you think about... One of the most important ones was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, you know he of Sherlock Holmes fame. And <laughs> yeah, he, he was, one person you'd be very, very difficult to convince. Yeah, and, trick. and he actually he was he was commissioned to write a little article on fairies uh, for the Strand magazine, so a very you know high profile magazine, and he was commissioned to write this in Christmas
0: 1920,
2: and. He himself is a is a spiritualist, um, so you know you can imagine him being sort of you know quite taken with this sort of you know with this sort of material. He's interested in psychic phenomena and 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 you know and gets a friend to go along and visit the family and interviews them about it and and then in the in the the magazine, the Strand Magazine, it is it is published, uh, and he later uh, produces a book uh basically about white, you know about about fairies and has literally you know swallowed it hook line and sinker and it's not until much much later i mean we're talking decades later that the girls actually <laughs> confess to it it's not until uh the 1980s that they confess to it uh and that they t- they talk about how they how they did it that it's basically a a double exposure of fairy cutouts uh, that they that they that they've used, so it's a sort of you know trick of.
0: Planning for your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices.
2: It's such a wonderful story,
1: though, isn't it? They actually did use cardboard cutouts and, that, that was kind of, um, and they propped up the cardboard figures with hat pins. But what I like about it is, as you say, they are they're really quite convincing, some of these pictures. Mm. Um, yeah, really, really wonderful. But um, that also has got me looking into other appearances of winged creatures in history. And I came across a wonderful, wonderful uh, collection of prints in the collections of the Victoria and Albert Museum. So this is a collection of the V&A Museum and what you've got here is a, a oh, how do I describe it, like a wild man of the woods. He's wearing a kind of kilt made out of feathers. He's got a stick over his left hand shoulder with red feathers at the top. Um, all the feathers are in a kind of red flaming colour, not very wearing very much around his chest. He's got some straps around his arms, a kind of belt. He's barefoot um, with a, a, a kind of a, a, a tail on the back as well. It really is an extraordinary thing. This is a colour reproduction of a costume design for a page or a fiery spirit in Thomas Campion's Lord's Mask of 1613. Dave, well, this is very much your period, isn't it? Um, The Lord's Mask, written by poet and musician Thomas Campion, 1567 to 1620. Um, It was a really important piece of work. It was performed alongside the Tempest as part of the festivities in 1612 to 1613 to celebrate the marriage of James I. First daughter, Elizabeth, to Frederick the Elector Palatine. Um, So a a really significant moment in English cultural history. Masks were a particular type of entertainment. Um, They often uh, were very, very elaborate productions, included roles, uh, the roles occasionally be silent, um, so they could be performed by noblemen and noble women of the court, but who have no experience in acting. Um, and it was always produced for an elite audience of their peers. Most notably, they were renowned for being costly multimedia shows, as we'd call them now. There was music, dance, there was special kind of stylized language, there was mime, um, extraordinary, very risque costumes, and that's what we've got here. We've got the image of one of these costumes. Moving sets, the, the sets required extraordinary design uh, challenges, uh, very complex mechanic, complex mechanics, Um, painting, lighting and sound Um, the content was usually allegorical or mythological um, with characters representing various virtues, vices, gods and goddesses um, a lot of the costumes were designed by um, the architect Inigo Jones, the same man who designed the Queen's House in Greenwich, which is where they keep the uh, the art collection of the National Maritime Museum. So if you want a sense of the period, hop on the train, go to the Queen's House in Greenwich. It's still got the best ceiling and floor of any house I've ever seen. That, Anyway, um, uh, Inigo Jones is famed uh, for making the stairs move and vanish in this production. And there is an account description of the lavish costumes worn by eight of the maskers, as they were known, It says they would appear in cloth of silver, embossed with flames of embroidery and crowns of flames made of gold plate and topped with a feather of silk. Uh, followed by 16 pages like fiery spirits dressed in clothes composed of flames with fiery wings and bases, bearing in either hand a torch of virgin wax. So that's exactly what we've got here in the collections of the v and um, I've got a little bit of a d- description here, more um, of Thomas Campion's show. I'm just going to read it out because it's fabulous. Gives you a real sense of the, I think, the luxury and elaborateness of, elaborateness, James, is that a word? Of 17th century theatre. It can be. It can be, thank you very much. So here we are. You're on the stage of a, you're in the audience of a 17th century theatre watching The Lord's Mask. Um, There's just been a song. According to the humour of this song, the stars moved in an exceeding strange and delightful manner, and I suppose few have ever seen more neat artifice than Master Inigo Jones showed in contriving their motion, who in all the rest of the workmanship which belonged to the whole invention showed extraordinary industry and skill, which, if it be not as lively expressed in writing as it appeared in view... "'Rob not him of his due, but lay the blame on my want of right, "'apprehending in his instructions for the adorning of his art.' But, to return to our purpose, about the end of this song, the stars suddenly vanished as if they had been drowned amongst the clouds and the eight maskers appeared in their habits which were infinitely rich, befitting states such as indeed they all were, as also a time so far heightened the day before with all the richest show of solemnity that could be invented. The ground of their attires was massy cloth of silver embossed with flames of embroidery. On their heads they had crowns, flames made all of gold plate enamelled and on the top a feather of silk representing a cloud of smoke. Upon their new transformation the whole scene being clouds dispersed and there appeared an elemental of artificial fires with several circles of lights in continual motion representing the house of Prometheus who then thus applies his speech to the maskers. It then goes on with Prometheus's speech, but there you are—a little wonderful glimpse into seventeenth-century theatre for aristocrats, for the nobles, and these
2: wonderful, winged, red, fiery-winged creatures. Oh, that's brilliant! That brings back brings back memories memories of my MA uh, many many years ago, where I studied the Johnsonian masks. Mm. Um, they are they're one of my favourite. Uh, Sort of entertainment forms, um, and you're you're right that they they really sort of merge um, this sort of theatricality with architectural style and and brilliant sort of poetic form. Uh, and one of the things I love about them is that the, these court they're, they're often court entertainments, so they're not put on for public in in a sense the sort of the general public, but they're put on for elite audiences and they're often choreographed and organized and include key court figures and at the end the sort of denouement the ending often um, involves a sort of a communal dance where the people who have been active upon the stage then dance with the people in the audience, who often they will know because they're all at court together, and so you get this blurring between real life and art. And one of the things I'm, I was very interested in, and I am very interested in, is the kinds of roles that uh, elite aristocratic and court women would have in these performances. Uh, you look at somebody like uh, Anne of Denmark, or Anna of Denmark, King James the Sixth and First's wife, who's quite active in it, and Henrietta Maria, Charles the First's wife as well, is active in in sort of producing and putting on uh, the these shows in association with the with the with the poets and also with the designers, and also you can see the women who would have been. Uh, performing in it we've got records of that so yeah it's absolutely extraordinary sort of piece of of sort of um of historical uh historical entertainment um but that is to digress monstrously about the cult masks because what I wanted to talk about was a different kind of wings and I wanted to talk about Uh, World War One and fighter pilots. And in particular, I wanted to talk about one fighter pilot, uh, a man called Captain John Aidan Liddle, uh, who was born in August 1888 and tragically died at the age of 27 uh, on the 31st of August uh, 1915. So, you know, barely a month beyond his 27th birthday. And the reason that I'm talking about him uh, is because uh, my uncle, uh, Peter Daybell, um, who's my father's brother, uh, wrote a biography of him, uh, which I've read, uh, which I like. Uh, You should all go out and read it if you're interested in in aviation history, if you're interested in uh, military history. um, Go out and buy that. Uh, It's published by Pen and Sword. Uh, And the title of it is With a Smile and a Wave, The Life of Captain Aidan Liddell, uh, V.C. Uh, So he was he's an extraordinary uh, character, really. And he receives uh, a Victoria Cross uh, for gallantry in the face of the enemy. It's one of the highest awards that can be uh, given to Commonwealth and British forces. Uh, and he's a really sort of extraordinary chap. Uh, he went to school at Stonyhurst uh, and then went on to Balliol College, Oxford, where he studied, would you believe, zoology. Um, and he joins the officer's special reserve, um, the 3rd Battalion um, in the British Army in 1912. And then he gets a pilot's certificate uh, in Nineteen fourteen, um, and he joins up and flies during the the during the First World War. When we see the development of the that what becomes the Royal Air Force, the Royal Flying Corps, uh, and he trains as a pilot uh, during this period. And he dro- joins uh, Number Seven Squadron. Um, and he one of the things that he's really known for is the way in which he was tragically killed during the war. Um, And he's flying a reconnaissance mission uh, on the 31st of July, 1915. He's flying over Ostend, Bruges, Ghent, that sort of area in in Belgium. And he gets hit by uh, enemy machine gun fire and is really badly wounded uh, in his right leg, in the sort of upper thigh there. And he almost sort of loses consciousness uh or he does for a while and then he sort of plummets um you know a great distance sort of all you know over a mile um uh but then he manages to get his get control back of the plane and then he manages to to land the plane uh and and it's sort of it is taken and is taken off um and despite these injuries and you know the Terrible, uh, terribly extensive damage to his machine. Um, he basically steps out of the, out of the, or is taken out of the aircraft, and then, as he's sort of being carried away on a stretcher, he sort of reclines and sort of smokes a cigarette, waves a hand, and sort of smiles and thinks that he's going to be, you know, absolutely fine, and is proclaimed a, a hero. And then, about a month or so later, he dies of his wounds. Um, and only a week after he's been given the VC for, you know, noble, uh, noble behavior. So if you are a courageous behavior, so if you're interested in this uh, little episode into uh, the sort of fighter pilots that we see uh, during uh, the First World War, uh, check out With a Smile and a Wave by my uncle Peter Daybell, which he wrote uh, when he was, um, I think, in retirement. Um, he, he was actually in the RAF. He flew a desk, uh, didn't actually fly, uh, but had been obsessed with this. Uh, and he did an MA in War Studies at King's uh, in London, and then was so interested in this particular subject uh, that he spent years sort of working on it in his own time, visiting all of the archives, um, you know, getting in touch with the family. He used the archives at Stonyhurst. Uh, and elsewhere and piece together a sort of, you know, a good narrative biography. Uh, Another thing that people could buy for a Christmas present, I imagine. A great little
1: story to do with the war, James.
2: And of course, Wings and War has its own
1: history. It's quite straightforward, but it's it's actually fascinating in its own way. Um, The use of aeroplanes to attack other aeroplanes, so you know, air-to-air combat was really—it wasn't very obvious at the beginning of the First World War. And the whole thing was a new invention. No one knew quite what was going to happen and at the beginning. Both sides just used um, planes for observing, like what we now call reconnaissance, flying over enemies to see what they were up to. And so whenever they encountered each other, there wasn't much they could do, apart from maybe shake a fist at each other, maybe even wave. Um, it wasn't long before they started carrying a few small bombs for one aeroplane to drop on another. Um, but it doesn't take long before both sides realise that they're really quite unhappy with um, people just flying with impunity overhead, observing what they were up to. That means that a pilots start to take pistols with them. They start to take rifles, to take potshots at other aeroplanes. Then they're soon mounting guns uh, on observation planes, mounting machine guns, and then they start designing um aeroplanes specifically designed to attack each other so that's what we essentially call fighter aircraft were developed within the, the, the within the first year i suppose of the first world war um all traditional biplanes with with two sets of wings as we'd expect them, but it's better materials higher speeds um kind of standard technological advances they soon makes uh, the biplane configuration obsolete um, uh, almost for all purposes by the late 1930s which is when you have things like the invention of the Spitfire and the Hurricane so yes of course you can do the history of wings you can do the history of aircraft as well James I very much enjoyed our double episode on the history of wings um, and we've got all sorts of fun stuff coming next this was inspired of course by Christmas themes the next Christmas one we're doing next is Reindeer <laughs> woo-hoo, woo-hoo. and what our a little micro
2: mean. history of Christmas as well. Oh yes, more micro What have we done so far? We've done bad luck, evil and shoes. All to do with Christmas, believe it or not. Yes. So
1: do please check out the wonderful Christmas episodes. There's lots more Christmassy fun coming over the next few weeks. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. If you're interested in maritime and naval history as you all should be, listen to my new podcast, The Mariner's
2: Mirror Podcast. And you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow the pod on at Unexpected Pod. You can also find out everything that we've been doing over the last few years at our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Uh, Yes, and also
1: there you can see how you can buy signed books for Christmas presents. Make very, very good presents. Our special little series books on the World War II, on the Romans, on the Vikings and on the Tudors would fit very well inside a stocking. So do please check that out. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll be with you soon. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.